That evening, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for Him. But as darkness fell, and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake towards Capernaum. Soon, a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. They were terrified. But He called out to them, Don't be afraid! I am here! Then they were eager to let Him in the boat, and immediately they arrived at their destination. This is the Word of the Lord. Our kids can be dismissed to Children's Church down the hall, and it is great to see everybody. Thank you for coming and uh, being a part of the 11 o'clock worship service here, and I want to say uh, happy Memorial Day weekend to you. I hope that you have all kinds of great things planned with your families. We have been in the middle of a, a series that we've just called Signs, and what we're doing is we're going through the Gospel of John. And we're looking at the signs that John picks to put in his gospel that show us who Jesus is and uh, what he has come to do. And uh, the reason that we picked up on this signs idea is because signs point beyond themselves. Signs are never just for the signs. Signs always point to something else. And that's what John is doing when he picks these signs that Jesus does. We would call them miracles. Some signs in our culture um, do a really bad job of pointing. Uh, they actually miss the mark. They point to the opposite of what was intended. I pulled up a few of these kind of bad signs. Here's one. So which is it? Enter, exit, we don't know. Here's another one. I'm not sure how to even comment on that. Here's another one. This, was, this is for students, and no matter how you read it, I, I can't make sense of it. Anybody? Somebody needs a lesson in formatting. I did finally get a combination that worked and made sense, but uh, uh, we need to rethink that sign. Uh, here's another one. This is a, a bakery counter. Uh, back in the back, there's a chocolate croissant there for $1.30. And then in the front, a pain bagel for 85 cents. I don't want to know what a pain bagel is like. And here's the, uh, the last one. Do you know what hell is? Come hear our preacher. On that note, if you were invited by a friend here today, welcome to hell. Um, uh, no, we're not going to talk about hell today. Uh, but the series, Signs, unlike all of those bad signs, John's signs say exactly what John wants to say. And the, the miracles that he picks uh, show us exactly who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And so there's no confusion in John's signs. Now, how do we know this? I want to share a super nerdy thing that I uncovered as we were going through these uh, signs and studying them. Um, John's signs are chiastic. And what that means is that they just mirror each other. Okay, so we've already covered four signs. We've across the tipping point here, and now we have four to go. We'll cover number five today. But here's, here's what I mean by chi chiastic. Uh, the first and the eighth sign are the same. They, they point to the same idea. 
Uh, the first sign is water into wine. It's, it's about Jesus bringing joy. And the very last sign is, is going to be about the catch of fish that's miraculous. And again, it's about a feast. It's about Jesus coming to bring joy. And so the first and the eighth mirror each other. The second and the seventh mirror each other. He's come to bring life. The third and the sixth mirror each other. He's come to bring true Sabbath rest. Both of those miracles take place on the Sabbath. And here, the fourth and the fifth, last week was the feeding of the 5,000. And it's about Jesus being provision and rescue. He's come to care. And today, he's going to walk on the water out to his friends. And it's about provision. It's about rescue. He's come to care. Do you see the sequence, what John is doing here? And that's how we know that John intentionally picks these out. He focuses the writing so much that the message cannot be mistaken. And that structure that he uses, which by the way was a very common structure for Greek writers to use, it means that he wants his main point not to be missed. And here's his main point. Again, it's at the end of the book in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs. He only includes eight of them. Jesus did 35 or 36 miracles, if, if you're counting, even just in the Gospels that we know of. Uh, he did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, secondly, by believing you might have life in his name. And today's text, this sign that John gives us, um, there's no question that you're going to walk out of here with more life than you came in with. Every, every week, I just try to be helpful. And this week is a game changer for some of you. And so, um, we read the text. You, you get the gist of the story. The disciples are in the boat. Jesus comes out walking on the water. So, let, let's focus on three things. First of all, Jesus' feet. Second, the disciples' eyes. And third, John's hand. Uh, first, Jesus' feet. In verse 19, John writes this, that when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Both Matthew, Mark, uh, and John, all, all three gospel writers write about this event, and Matthew and Mark include some details that John doesn't, but what John does give us is the most important point, that Jesus was walking on the sea, and the, the clue that that's an important point is the word that John uses for walking. I, I just got back from a trip uh, some days away, and we went to Oregon, and, and uh, the, that experience was filled with hiking. Hiking is different from walking, right? Hiking is a slogging. Hiking is treading. Hiking is working to get somewhere. Even if the view that you're going to is worth it, you've exerted effort to be there. You get there and you say, whew, I'm here. That's not the word John uses. John uses the everyday normal word for walking. He uses the exact same word later for Jesus when Jesus is walking through the temple. That's what it means. The word could almost mean stroll about. We could use the, 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 the thought of sightseeing for this word, walking. It's, so it's not, whew, I'm glad I made it. It's casually strolling along, sightseeing. And that's what Jesus is doing. And notice where he's doing it. 
on the sea, on the water. There are some other details that John gives that this water was rough, that it was dark, that it was, uh, there were strong winds, and, and heavy winds mean big waves out on the sea. And so this combination of water and wind becomes one of the most destructive forces on the planet, right? Combine the two and you get things uh, like hurricanes. That's what we call uh, those kind of storms. Um, if you want to break up a hurricane, good luck. You could drop a bomb on, into a hurricane. It won't make a difference. It won't stop it. And that's, that's what John describes. The sea is rough. The wind is blowing. The storm is doing its worst. And the disciples are in a boat. They're trying to make ground against these, the, the wind and the waves. And you can see them in their struggle. And in the middle of that, Jesus comes walking out, strolling out on the sea. And it tells us this, that Jesus has absolutely every power over the storm. And the most uncontrollable forces in this, in this world have absolutely no power over Him. He's not just walking on the water, but He's walking on the storm itself. And it tells us that He is no less than the God of creation. Uh, what John's sign shows is that this is the God of the universe with power over every corner of creation, and He has come to help us, not just with the little storm of today, but with the giant storm of sin. And the great comfort as we look at Jesus' feet is this, that chaos may reign in your life, but Jesus reigns over the chaos. He walks on the storm. He's over all of it. He's so powerful that He just takes a stroll right through the wind and the waves in order to help his friends. That's the God that we have. That's the God that comes to us. That's what we see when we see Jesus' feet. And so, secondly, just for a few minutes, I, I want to see not only Jesus' feet, but then look through the disciples' eyes. Um, verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Um, John just writes, they got into a boat and they started to cross. Matthew and Mark include another important detail, and it is this. This is the way Mark writes it. He says, immediately Jesus, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. He made them. The word could be translated compelled. He compelled them. Or even this, he forced them. In other words, he made them get into the boat and they go. They, they get into the boat as a result of the words of Jesus. And John writes then that after they're in the boat, it's dark. There are, the, the sea is rough. The, there's a strong wind blowing. What does that sound like? That sounds like a storm to me. And do you see what's happening? These disciples obey the word of Jesus. They get into the boat. And the result, what they get is a storm. John writes they get darkness, John writes that they get wind, John writes that they get left alone, there's no Jesus, he hasn't come to them yet, they get rough seas, they obeyed, but they still get all of those things. Is that not a scenario that you've brought up to God before? Wait, wait a minute, God, hold on, hold on here, why this? I mean, I, I, I went to church. 
I sat in the pew. I, I read the Bible. I prayed. I gave. I loved. I served. And still I get this. This is what I get. And it doesn't take very long to, to second guess our obedience. Because we look at this scene, the disciples are compelled into the boat, and then they're led into a storm, and we, we think to ourselves, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me get this straight. They would have been safe away from the storm, out of the wind, on solid ground, if only they had disobeyed Jesus. And the answer is yes. That's true. Following Jesus means that sometimes I have to trust Him so much that I would rather be in the dangerous boat that He compelled me to than the safe land that my heart would have otherwise chosen. It's one thing to get the storm when we disobey. We get that, right? We expect that. I mean, we read the Old Testament, and the prophet Jonah runs the opposite way from God, and what does he get? He gets a storm. Duh. We expect that. What's hard to calculate in our mind is why we get storms even when we obey. But we see it everywhere. You can look through the pages of Scripture. You see Moses obeying God. And all of a sudden there is a Red Sea in front of him and the Egyptian army behind him and he's trapped in the middle. We can read about Daniel obeying God and getting locked into a pit with hungry lions ready to devour him. We can see Paul obeying as he's preaching the gospel and people stone him for it and leave him for dead. We, we see the disciples obeying here right into the storm. One of the things that following Jesus does is that it automatically puts us at odds with the world. And so we, wouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised when the world reacts to that. Swimming upstream. Is, is hard work, right? There will necessarily be sweat and tears and pain. And so obedience takes us into storms. But knowing we're there at God's request is to also know that we're in the right place, even if it doesn't feel like we're in the right place. Being in the worst circumstance with God is better than being in the best circumstance without Him. And so Jesus compels them to get in the boat, and they start rowing, but Jesus doesn't forget them. Mark includes this little detail that even from the mountain where he was, he could see the disciples out on the lake. And John reminds us that it was dark, right? From the disciples' eyes, it seems like Jesus is far off, that he's, he's disconnected, he's unaware, he's unconcerned, but that really is never the case. He always sees us in our need. Matthew says, during the fourth watch of the night, which just means that those are the hours that nobody should be awake, right? Jesus comes strolling by. He's taking his stroll. God is seldom early, but he's never late. In verse 19, John writes this, that the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were, what's the word? Frightened. Frightened. The Greek word is phobia. You, you've heard that word before. It means, it just means fears, right? Now, some of these guys are very experienced fishermen. They've been in boats all their lives. They're used to that. They're used to the sea. They expect storms, and yet it's dark. There's wind. The seas are rough. Matthew and Mark say that the disciples are terrified. It means shaken up. They're stirred up. 
And we're really not sure why they're frightened, why they're terrified. Mark gives us a detail that they think Jesus is a ghost. Maybe they're afraid of the storm. Maybe they're afraid of Jesus, this ghost thing that they don't know is Jesus. We, we, we don't know why they're afraid. All we get to see is the result, not the cause. We only get to see the outward emotion. They're frightened. They're terrified. They're shaken up. And one possibility is that maybe they were frightened because when you're on, on the sea and it gets rough and there's a storm, there's nowhere to go. There's no shelter. There's no refuge from a storm when you're at sea. If you're in the mountains and a storm comes up, maybe there's a cave. Maybe there's a rock to crawl under. If you're in the woods and a storm comes up, maybe there's a tree to get under. Maybe even a shelter somewhere that's built. But, but at sea, there's no refuge at all. And so if you have a big storm, if you see some ghost walking on the water, there's nowhere to run. And in your life, in my life, we've probably been somewhere like that. Nowhere to run. If you've lived any life at all, you've, you know that there are storms. It's not a matter of if, but when. And when those storms come, lots of times they're just beyond you. You have nowhere to turn. You have no shelter. It seems like there's no refuge. It, it's like being at sea in the storm. When you face the loss of someone close, that's a, that's a storm that puts you out of your depth, right? We have a, a dear uh, family in, in our church that's been connected a long time, and um, she passed away unexpectedly, Jan Tate, uh, this weekend. And so here's a family that's going through a storm, and immediately you're not expecting that. She was at track meet one day, and she's not here the next. That you're out of your depth at that point, right? When you get that diagnosis you feared the most, you're out of your depth. When, when you get stabbed in the back by someone you thought was a friend, you're out of your depth. When you lose the business, lose the account, lose the home that you worked for your entire life to have, you're out of your depth. And those four categories, death, health, relationships, finances, it doesn't really matter who you are, those things will find you. You will not escape loss in those areas of your life. And that's just four. Things will happen, and you will be out of your depth like being on the sea during a storm with no refuge. And when those kind of storms come, all kinds of fears and phobias are sure to follow. follow. Uh, another term that we would use for this is anxiety. Anxiety was what was in the eyes of the disciples. And anxiety is this. Let me define it this way. When I don't have what I think I need. That's anxiety. And there are three main causes of anxiety. One is when I start feeling uncertain. Maybe life throws a curveball at me and uh, there's no obvious path, there's no right answer, I don't really know what to do, and life paralyzes me, I'm uncertain. That can bring about anxiety. Second, maybe I feel unnoticed. I haven't been seen. Do, do the people around me even care? I, I should have been recognized for this. That can bring on anxiety. Maybe I feel unappreciated. That's the third one. I do all of this stuff and nobody cares. I just get criticism for it. And that can bring on anxiety. And from the disciples' eyes here, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Surely they are uncertain, right? With the dark and the wind and the waves, clearly they're feeling unnoticed. Jesus is still on the hill. He doesn't care. He's not come yet. He's not coming. 
Maybe they feel like he left us. Do the disciples feel unappreciated? I don't know. Maybe you could make a case for that. But even if you can't, two out of three is going to land you in anxiety town, right? Anxiety is the most pervasive emotional problem in our lives today. There are more Google searches about anxiety than there are for depression. 18% of Americans currently suffer from a severe anxiety disorder. If you expand that question to have you ever suffered a severe anxiety disorder, that number goes to 30%. That's one out of three of us. 62%, that's two out of three. 62% of college students right now would describe themselves as experiencing overwhelming anxiety. There's a psychologist, uh, Robert Leahy, he writes this, that the average American child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient did in the 1950s. Then he says this, we live in an age of anxiety, we become a nation of nervous wrecks. Now here's the thing about what he writes, it's from 2009. That's 12 years ago. Things haven't gotten better. They've gotten infinitely worse. And chronic anxiety has this message to us. It says this, it's all on you. It says there's probably nothing you can do to fix it. Wow, you should have done better. You should have known better. By this time, you should be further along. And there are all of these shoulds and oughts, right? But, but if it's really true that the gospel sets us free, then chronic anxiety becomes one of the top ways that we can actually be transformed by Christ. And so, how do we do that? The disciples knew that they were anxious. Let's, let's start there. Let's ask ourselves the question, how do we know when we're anxious? If you were to be asked that question, how do you know when you're anxious? Where, could, you, could you answer? Does your body tell you that you're anxious? Does your mind, does your stomach start spinning? Uh, second, do you know what makes you anxious? What are the things that you think you need in your life, but you really don't? For most of us, chronic anxiety is generated after we don't get what we want. Or to be more precise about it, we don't get what we believe we need when we don't really need it. There's a guy named Steve Cuss, and he's a, uh, he worked in a trauma center uh, level, uh, who knows, the, the worst one, uh, for lots and lots of years. And he wrote a book about anxiety because he faced it in every room that he walked into in the hospital, in the trauma uh, department. And he, he talks about dealing with anxiety, and he gives us four really good tools to use. He says, first, you need to ask. When you're facing this anxiety, when those feelings come up, ask, what is it that I think I need that I'm not getting? Whether it's from a person or from a circumstance, just ask, what is it that I think I need here? And just that, just that acknowledgement will go a long way. Then number two, he says, run. Let your anxiety run rampant for 30 to 60 minutes. Uh, maybe you can set a timer on your oven or on your phone for 30 and just let your brain go. Now that sounds absolutely wrong. But what he's doing is he's, he's saying you need to 
chase the anxiety rabbit trails, and as you're doing that, take mental notes in your mind. Study your anxious thoughts, where they're going, why they're happening. And one thing that you'll probably find is that it is impossible for all of your anxieties to be true at the same time. So study your thoughts. Here's, here's number three, externalize. Speak out your anxiety to somebody that you trust. Grab somebody and just say to them, I am anxious and here's why. I have this event coming up and I've been tasked with this thing and I don't think I'm going to be able to pull it off and it is creating some really severe anxiety in me. What is that? That's confession. Confession just means to say the same thing. You're just saying the same thing outwardly than you're feeling inwardly. That's confession. Name it to tame it. That, that's the idea. And here's number four. When you've done all that, now go to what you know is true. Let me ask you this question. When in your life do you feel most fully loved? The days the things, the people, the circumstances, the activities that you're in, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? And the things that are coming to your brain probably involve a person, they probably involve a place, they probably involve an activity or a combination of all of those three. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start a list of those answers and we're going to call it the life-giving list. And so take your phone out, make a list, the life-giving list, or maybe your moleskin or your journal or uh, do it in sidewalk chalk at your home, doesn't matter, uh, wherever, uh, and create a life-giving list. Uh, Steve Cuss that I uh, referenced before is the creator of, of these uh, ideas, and his website is stevecusswords.com. Isn't that great? That's beautiful. That's wonderful. Um, and you can go to stevecusswords.com and download a template for a life-giving list for free. I will tell you that on that site, there's a lot of paid things as well that I'm sure are helpful resources. They're just behind a paywall, so just know that. But you can get the life-giving list for free. And here's what he's going to tell you to do. Who are the people? Where are the places? And what are the activities that make you feel most human and alive? That's what you start to list. And so there are people, maybe they're, they're, they're close to you, maybe they're in a remote place. Uh, surely it's your spouse, surely it's your kids, surely it's a friend that lives in Maine, maybe it's a fishing buddy or the people in your book club or a relative in Florida. Put all those people down. Uh, who are, what are the, where are the places where you feel most fully loved? And, and there should be some places that don't cost anything to go to. There should be some places that maybe you might have to save up for. And so uh, maybe it's Gun Park. Maybe it's uh, the mountains. You're heading there. Maybe it's a river somewhere. Maybe it's your own garden. Uh, maybe you're at a ball game. Maybe you're on the golf course. Maybe you're in the desert. Maybe you're walking uh, down the new sidewalks on National. I don't know. This is your list, right? And here are the activities. Uh, and again, activities should be mixed with things that don't cost a lot of money and, and you can do immediately with, with things that maybe cost a little more and maybe you have to plan to do, okay? Maybe walking the dog is, really gives you life. Maybe creating something really gives you life. Maybe you could ask yourself, 
what things make me lose track of time when I do them? That's what we're after. Maybe it's woodworking or needlepoint or mowing the lawn. Some of us really get life from mowing the lawn. Uh, popping popcorn or drinking that perfect cup of coffee in the morning or being on the patio with a fire pit or reading a great book. What gives you life? What are the things that help you relax and connect more to God? Now, what are we doing here? with this list. What we're doing is we're recognizing the gifts that God has given that are all around us. The gifts that He's given for us to just experience. The gifts are the way that we know God loves us. These are the things that we see and know God cares because He's given us even these little things. Some of them are big. And here's, here's, the, here's the big idea. When you know you're loved, when you know you're cared for, it's really hard to be anxious. There are two things that displace anxiety. Love is one of them. Laughter is the other one. Try being anxious when you're really laughing. You can't do it, right? And this list is about loving and laughing. And so your goal this week is to get through the week, and by the end of the week, I want 30 things on your list. I think all of us should strive for 100 things on our life-giving list. 100 things that we can use so that when anxiety comes into our life, we can go to what we know is true. We use the list we pick two or three when that anxiety comes in. We pick two or three that we can do immediately that redirect us to the truth that God loves us because He put these gifts in our life and we replace fear with truth. John, the apostle, in another letter that he writes, writes this, perfect love casts out fear. And so with this list, what we're doing is we're preaching to our heart that we are indeed loved children of God as evidenced by all of these gifts around us. So even if we lose our job, even if we get audited, even if we're in the middle of the storm, we are loved. And here's, here's my contention. Verse 20 indicates that this is what happened on the water. Jesus comes to them in the middle of the storm and he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. He sees his disciples struggling, they're full of anxiety and he walks out to the water, on the water to them and says, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, what he really says can't be translated exactly because if we do, it wouldn't make sense. It, it, the Greek is just ego in me, don't be afraid. Ego and me, don't be afraid. He doesn't say, it is I, don't be afraid. What he says is, ego and me, don't be afraid. And it means this, I am. Does that ring a bell? Moses, when, in the Old Testament, when God shows up and says, lead my people out of Egypt, he says, I'm going to go to Pharaoh, but when I go, who, I, don't even, I don't even know your name. Who, who do I say sent me? And God says, when you get to Pharaoh, just say, I am sent you. What God is saying is that his name is always am. God never will be. He has no beginning. God, he has no cause. God never was because he has no end. He just always 
is. He's not a being. He is being itself. He doesn't just exist. He is existence himself. And so, Moses, when you go, tell them, being itself sent you. I am. And here's Jesus. He's not walking through the water. He's walking on the water. And he says, I am. Don't be afraid. I am the indefinitely exalted above the universe, transcendent one. I am the one who created the world. I am the one who sustains it at every moment. I am the one without beginning, without end. That's the God who I am. And all the power that I have at my disposal is now on your side. I am here to leverage it for you. So don't be afraid. And what's happening? What's going on? The disciples are being redirected to what is true. Their fears and their anxieties are being replaced with truth. Ego me, the I am, is here. We don't need to be afraid. Let the good news of Jesus' gospel invade your heart like that over and over. You can use the life-giving list to help. What lies are you believing that are making you anxious? And then go to what you know is true. Maybe I'm believing that if I fail, my failure will be fatal. Is that true? No. The truth is that God has used failures before, and He can again. And even if I fail, He can use that. He is the I am. He is with me. He cares. Don't be afraid. Let the gospel infect your anxiety. Here's how we need to close. One more evident thing here is John's hand. We've seen Jesus' feet on the water, the disciples' eyes as they're looking through fear and anxiety, and they replace that with the truth of who Jesus is. And here's John's hand, verse 17. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat. John, the apostle, is the one that writes this down with his own hand, and he carefully and precisely picks this sign to show us that Jesus is the powerful God of provision that cares for his people, giving us freedom from even the things that terrify us in our life. And, but there's something that's so simple here that sometimes we just might not even see it. Jesus, we talked about, he's walking on the storm and then he gets his disciples and they, he walks through the storm with them. Note that John doesn't ever say that Jesus calmed the storm. The important point for John was not that the storm went away, it was that Jesus was with them in the storm. But John's writing does give us the most obvious thing that Jesus does. Here it is. He walks into the storm. Well, that's simple, right? So easy to miss. At first he hasn't come to them, but then he comes near. And that means he walks into the storm. In the Old Testament, there's a story about a prophet named Jonah who is tasked by God to go and preach to a certain people, and he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go the opposite way. I'm going to get as far away from God and as far away from those people as I can. And so he makes a trip in the opposite direction. He comes to a sea, and he gets on a ship, and he's going as far in the opposite way as God wanted him to go. And he's on a ship, and he's sailing, and a storm comes up on the ship. 
on the sea. And the sailors that are on the ship are terrified because they know that the storm has been sent as a punishment against someone. They just don't know who it is. And so they start pointing fingers at each everybody, and, and nobody, nobody's like, well, I didn't do anything this week. I, I lived a good life this week. And Jonah finally steps up and says, it's me. I'm running from God. This is the storm that I deserve because I've sinned, and I know that the only way to calm this storm is for you to throw me into it. And so they do. And the storm stops, and the sailors are saved. And the rest of the story is really cool too. You should read it. It's about four chapters long in the Old Testament, book of Jonah. One of the things that Jesus says about himself in Matthew chapter 12 is this, that a greater Jonah is here. Jesus says, I am the ultimate Jonah. What it means is this, that all the storms of this life, whether they're literal storms off a coast that sink ships or in Kansas that topple houses and trees, or whether they are figurative storms that come for each of us, no matter what kind of storm it is, Every storm we encounter is because we ran the other way from God. And the whole world does not work because of our rebellion. And because of our sin, we deserve to be thrown into the storm. But Jesus is the ultimate Jonah. He comes, he raises his hand, and he says, throw me in instead. And he goes into the storm, and he saves us from the storms because he threw himself into the ultimate storm. He walked right into the storm of God's wrath, God's justice on the cross so that we could have peace with God, so that we could have calm waters in our life. He did that for you. He did that for me. He went through the ultimate storm for us. And if you walked right into the storm, then... What do you think he's going to do about that little itty-bitty storm that you're going through right now? Do you think he will abandon you? Not a chance. I want you to take your uh, communion emblems out and get those ready. Um, Because the reason we come around the table is because Jesus went into the ultimate storm for us. The storm of sin and death. And he came out of that storm victorious on the other side. And because he was victorious out of death, we can be as well. And so we come around the table every week to remember Jesus died for us so that we could live. And we love him for it. So I'm going to pray in a second and then we'll take communion together and then we'll close out our service in worship. But I want you to... um, Think about the way that John ends this little text. It's in verse 21. In verse 21, John ends with this cryptic sentence. We're not really sure what he means. It just says this, Then they were glad to take him into the boat, meaning Jesus, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Is that another miracle? I I don't know. Maybe all we need to know from this is that we have times in our lives where the wind will kick up and anxiety will come in and infect us. And in those times, the best action is to listen through the wind and to hear the voice of God saying, Ego and me, I am. 
Don't be afraid. And when we hear that voice, the best thing we can do is invite him in. Do you need to invite Jesus into the boat today? If you're ready to take Jesus on board, you may likely find yourself at the harbor of calm and security sooner than you ever thought. Father, we thank you that Jesus walked on the storm and into the storm for us. That he has the power to conquer sin and death on our behalf. When we deserve punishment, he took it for us. And that's why we hold up a piece of bread and a cup of juice. And we look to a Savior who has saved us. We love them.